you have a Bible, open up to Genesis chapter 29. Genesis 29, and we'll have this on the screen as well. But as humans, we are a people of desire. So we have these longings, yearnings, passions. We make lists of all the things that we want. When I was a kid, I really wanted a dog. I just wanted a companion to lick my hand and be with me every step of the way. I finally wore my parents down. But when I was a teenager, I wanted a girlfriend. And I wanted good grades because I wanted to get into a good school because I wanted to get a good job. And when I became an adult, I wanted a wife. And then I wanted a career, and then I wanted kids, and now I want work success and approval in a little nicer house, in a little more travel, in a little better backyard, and a hammock throne. You ever seen a hammock throne? Google hammock throne. They're amazing. I want one someday. I want a legacy of my life to go beyond today. So we we label these desires, these longings, these wants. It's the the blank we always wanted, the friend we always wanted, the spouse we always wanted, the dog we always wanted, the job we always wanted, the life we always wanted. I know I'm not the only one who thinks this way. You have desires too. And if we pass the mic, we could hear whatever it is that you fill the blank with. All of us invest deeply in the desires of our heart. But even more, as we live, the dirty little secret that we don't talk about is that often when we get those things, they don't satisfy. Author C.S. Lewis put it this way far more eloquently than I could in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, most people if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I am not now speaking of what would ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or learned careers. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There was something we grasped at in that first moment of longing which just fades away in the reality. I think everyone knows what I mean. The wife may be a good wife and the hotels and scenery may have been excellent and chemistry may be a very interesting job, but something has evaded us. Especially if your job is chemistry, I'm sorry. (laughs) No offense. The good things, really good things, aren't built to satisfy us, and they fade away. And believe it or not, there's a reason why. So again, Genesis 29, verse 1. We're going to continue this morning in a series we've been at for quite some time now in the book of Genesis, going and looking at the life of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We're near the tail end of this. We've been through Abraham's life and Isaac's life, and now we're looking at Jacob and his life. 
his story and the way in which it serves as a mirror for ourselves. So we'll just kind of pick up with the story and we'll, we'll go from here. Genesis 29, verse 1. It says, Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. And as he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large. And when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Now, I know some of you haven't been with us to follow through the storyline, but Jacob from an early age had a life of struggle. We're told that he battled his twin brother in his mother's womb. We're told that he grabbed his brother's heel as he was being delivered, coming out of the womb. He swindled for the family birthright for a bowl of soup, and he lied his way into obtaining the family blessing from his father. So because of all the, the, the swindling, the conniving, the jockeying for position, the family was a wreck. And he had done so much, Jacob had done so much that his twin brother Esau legitimately wanted to kill him. And so his mom last week, she said, get out of here because he's going to kill you and I don't want to lose both of you. So Jacob packs his bag, sets out from home, embarks on this journey to the east, hoping to find some distant family that'll take him in. But here's what's crazy in the Jacob story. For all the problems and all the turmoil and all the difficulty that Jacob has, he ends up in this place. He ends up, Genesis 29, in the, quote, right spot. And he comes upon a well, and he finds these shepherds who are there at the well. And he begins to ask them a bunch of questions. Verse 4, Jacob said to them, my brothers, where do you come from? And they said, we are from Haran. He said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, we know him. And he said to them, is it well with him? And they said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go, pasture them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we will water the sheep. So all throughout this little interaction that Jacob has with the people at the well, things get brighter. Not only do they greet him kindly, but they begin to connect the dots. He asks where they're from. He's like, where are you from? From Haran. Oh, Haran. Like, that's where I think I'm going. What are the odds? Do you know Laban? That's his uncle, Laban. He's like, yeah, we know Laban. And there's his daughter. So you, you have this random connection. He strolls onto this place and he finds a well and there just happens to be people there and he just happens to know them and it just happens to be the people in the place that he's looking to connect with. Now, over the next probably 20-some verses of this story, we're going to see Jacob come to meet a variety of people. And we're going to see Jacob's story continue, but he meets then Laban, and we'll see his story continue, and we'll come to find a few of the other women in the story as well. Laban's two daughters, Rachel and Leah. 
So what we're going to do as we talk through the story today, we're just going to pay attention because each person in the story ends up having deep, deep desire. They each have their own way of filling in the blank of the blank that they always wanted. So here, here's kind of the progression today. The, the passion of Jacob, the plan of Laban, the pain of Leah, and the panic of Rachel. And in English, at least, they all start with P. As we watch these people, again, they serve as a mirror into the places of desire and longing in our story, too. So first, we'll start with, with Jacob, the passion of Jacob. Because of his background, because of his story, because of his family, Jacob is ripe to look somewhere for someone to bring him identity, meaning, and fulfillment. In short, Jacob wants a wife. Jacob is looking for a woman. So, back to the well and the sheep and the shepherds. Here's how that story begins to unfold. Verse 9, while Jacob was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdress. Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, again, you see the kind of family connections. This is his far-removed family that he's made the journey. He connects and sees them. It's Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother. Jacob came near, and he rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud, and Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. Now this encounter may not seem like much at first glance, but most guys who hear the story know exactly what's going on here. The author is really explicit at the very beginning of the story. The, the, the author describes what's happening with this well. There's a big well, and there's a big stone that's placed over the well to keep the water fresh and to keep critters and animals or others unwanted people from getting into the water of the well. So there's this giant stone. It, it, the text tells us it usually takes three or four people to carry the stone off of its resting place so that people have access to the well. So there's a time of day they would all gather around the well, and then they would three or four people would lift the stone away and they would access the water of the well. On this day, though, Jacob looks up and he sees her, Rachel. And she's beautiful. And you know exactly what he's doing here. He single-handedly removes the stone from the well and then he single-handedly waters all of the flock. Guys, what's he doing? He's showing off. He's like, uh, do you know which way to the weight room? Oh, that's okay. I'll just get this one myself, right? And he moves the big stone himself, and he extends all of his energy to water her flock because he's trying to impress her. And right from the get-go, something's happening in Jacob, and he is... The theological word is Twitter-pated. <laughs> and he does all that he can to impress her. And in his excitement, right, he, he weeps over her and he kisses her, not inappropriately, but as a welcome, a sign of greeting. And he's like, I'm Rebecca's son. You're Laban's, like, we're family. 
You're the family I came back to meet. And he sees her, and he's taken by her. Verse 13. And as soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. So there's this initial month of greeting and hospitality, and Laban offers Jacob a business deal. And in this initial kind of welcome and this celebration, you kind of hear this kind of early Genesis language, you are my bone and my flesh, and there's excitement, there's embrace, and there's kisses, and there's welcome. I'm like, we're just really glad to have you around. But then it gets more formal, verse 15. Then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love that he had for her. So in this moment, as the negotiation happens, Jacob sets his sight on marrying Rachel. What's the terms of the deal? Serve in my household for seven years. Like, that's a pretty serious commitment. Seven years of work, seven years of labor, seven years of toil, and Jacob was like, no big deal. Because he wants her as a wife. Now we begin to learn more kind of the dynamic of the story that's going on because Jacob has his affection set on Rachel, who is the younger sister, but then we also come to find out there's another sister in the story, and her name is Leah. The text says that she has weak eyes, but that's probably not a commentary on her eyesight. Had more to do with, yeah, with her appearance. She was more homely. She wasn't going to win a beauty pageant, especially in contrast to her sister, Rachel, who, again, according to the text, is stunning and beautiful in form and appearance, in form and face. She's gorgeous. But Jacob doesn't love Leah. Jacob loves Rachel, and he's a man-possessed. Singularity of focus. And he says it'll be worth the time Seven years, no big deal. Oh, the things that we do for love. My freshman year of college, I'm sure I've told this story before, I went to Chicago to go to college. My then girlfriend, now wife Callie, went to Southern California for college. Back then in the mid-90s, it was before cell phones and when you still had long-distance phone calls and phones with cords on them. And my shock and horror hit the first month of first semester freshman year when I got my first long-distance phone bill. It was like $350. And I didn't have a job, I didn't have any money, and I was like, what in the world am I, how do, I I, I panicked. 
I'm not telling my parents that I racked up $350 worth of long-distance phone calls to my beloved in California. So what did I do? I went and got a job. And I borrowed this dude's bike on my dorm floor, and I rode my bike to this old lady's house, and I raked her leaves, and I shoveled her snow, and I polished her ornaments, and I hung up her Christmas decorate. I did whatever she wanted to in the Chicago fall and winter, and it was miserable, but I did it for love. <laughs> Didn't complain a day, because at least I could pay my phone bill, and at the end of the night, I could call my girlfriend and talk on the phone. Jacob's in the same boat. Seven years, no big deal. He's gone all in. Seven years, time flies. But this is where then Jacob, again, the deceiver, the supplanter, the trickster, Jacob gets Jacobed. And he meets Jacob 2.0, which is his uncle Laban. Next slide. Laban's plan, verse 21. It says, then Jacob said to Laban, at the end of seven years, give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this that you've done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. Like, what in the world just happened there? Well, Laban's plan is what happened. And I know, like, again, there are many things that are culturally, like, grating on us in this story. Like, many, many things that are, like, this is really messed up. What about this, and what about this, and what about that, and what about that? Hear the story out. Again, from Laban's perspective as a father, he has a problem. He has two daughters, not just one, and the one who is older is Leah, and no one loves Leah, no one wants Leah, no one would work seven years for Leah. It's a tough sell. And so now he has this problem where Jacob has fulfilled his seven years of service, and he wants to marry his daughter, Rachel, and now he's like, now I'm going to lose Rachel before Leah gets married, and now I'm going to lose my best worker who's worked for me for these seven years. And again, this is where Laban turns into Jacob 2.0. It's cut from the same deceptive cloth. And he pulls a switcheroo on the wedding night. Now, I know that most modern readers read, I, I've read this story, I'm like, how in the world did Jacob not know? Like, how did, like, he woke up the next morning and realized that it wasn't the woman that he thought he was marrying? Like, there's no way on God's green earth that's happening to me. But again, you have to understand the context of an ancient wedding, which lasted for days, sometimes weeks. 
and there was food, and there was lots and lots of drink. And then the bride would come to the wedding, and she would be in a head-to-toe veil. You wouldn't see who she was. And then it came for the time of consummation where the groom and the bride would go into the tent, and it's dark. There's no lights. There's no cell phone screens by tent to give you light. And he wakes up the next morning. Surprise! This is not the woman that I thought I was going to marry. In the morning, behold, it was Leah. So now, again, as we read through the story, there's this whole conversation, there's this whole arrangement where he agrees for seven more years, but he doesn't have to work it on the front end, it's on the back end. And again, he, Laban gives his daughter Rachel. And now Jacob has two wives. And now there's intense competition in their marriages and in this home. And they all have their own version of desire. So we've kind of talked a little bit about Jacob's passion and Laban's plan. Let's talk about Leah. Leah's pain. Can you imagine what life was like for Leah? The older sister, the one with, quote, weak eyes, the one that nobody really loved or wanted, the one who kind of ends up in a, as a pawn in her father's game. Rachel gets all the attention. Rachel gets all the head turns. And now she's a bartering chip for her father's master plan. She and her sister now share a husband, which have all sorts of complications built in. And in this marriage arrangement, she's the third wheel. She's the unloved one. So Leah hatches her own plan. How can I somehow get the affection of my husband that I always wanted? Ah, I know. I'll have kids. And so she places all of her hope in the maternity basket. Here's verse 31. Can we go ahead? There we go. Said, so when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. And again she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. Please understand me on this. Children are amazing and they're a gift and they're good, and they're a blessing from above. But when you start watching Leah's story unfold, you realize that her desire to have kids is not just about her desire to have kids. And it comes out in the way she names them and the meaning of these names. She has the first son, Reuben, which sounds like the Hebrew word, behold a son. And, and she tells on herself, She's like, ah, now I've born a son. Now maybe Jacob will pay attention 
For now my husband will love me. Now he'll love me because I've born a child. And then again, she has the second child, Simeon, which means heard. And she feels vindicated. She feels like God has heard her. And then she has this third son, Levi, which his name means attached. Maybe now that I've borne my husband three sons, my husband will be attached to me. So the more you read the story, the more that you realize that these kids aren't just kids. These kids are chess pieces in her own game. Just like she was a chess piece in her father's game, now she's playing chess with her own kids for the affection, the hearing, and the love of her husband. But here's the problem. It didn't satisfy. It didn't work. So that's Leah. (laughs) She begins having kid after kid after kid, and there's more kids to come, don't worry. But all is not well for Rachel. Again, you think, well, Rachel has it all because she got the affection and love of her husband Jacob, and now they're married, and now they're together, and they they live happily ever after, right? Isn't that how the fairy tale goes? But things aren't well for Rachel either. Because now, even though she has the love and affection of her husband, now she's watching her sister have child after child after child. And now here's her heartache, here's her longing, here's her desire, here's her cry. Chapter 30, verse 1, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, when she's barren, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Sorry, that's my own reading in the text. But there's, right, there's just passion, there's angst, there's jealousy. My sister just has child after child. What's wrong with me? I'm barren. Yes, I'm married, and yes, I have your heart's affection, but now I want children. It's the child I always wanted. Give me children or else I'll die. And now I won't read all of it for the sake of time, but the rest of chapter 30, if you want to have some good leisure reading the rest of the weekend, the rest of chapter 30 is a birthing competition between these two women, and they get their handmaiden involved. And so Rachel, in getting her handmaiden involved in the situation, she declares victory in the child war in verse 8. Kids are flying, umbilical cords are everywhere. (laughs) Sorry, that was inappropriate. But by the time the dust settles on this story, 12 kids have been birthed by four women and no one's satisfied. Jacob's passion. I want her to be my wife, and I won't be happy until she's my wife. I'll serve seven years, and seven years more, she's the one for me. Laban, scheming, manipulating, swapping daughters out in the tents. The control that I've always wanted. Leah, the pain in her story, of the love of her husband that she always wanted. Rachel, I just want children like my sister, the child I always wanted. 
What are the common themes through this story? Number one is that sin always cycles and recycles. And it's really easy for people to minimize sin. I think sin's a dirty word in our culture. We don't like to talk about sin. It feels too heavy-handed and judgmental, so we'll talk about mistakes and little white lies and blunders and bad days. But man, this story just reminds us how sin can grow and left unchecked. It just keeps popping back up again. It's interesting, in Jacob's story, if you go back a few weeks in the story, there was deception in the tent, and he deceived his father, and he lied to be his brother. Who are you? I'm Esau. There was deception in the tent, and now, again, there's deception in the tent about who's the woman that I'm marrying. There's favoritism in Jacob's family, when Father Isaac prefers one son over another, and then that unloved son, Jacob, ends up playing favorites with his wife, loving one, ignoring the other, and the war among wives and siblings and family members just spirals. May we remember there's no harmless sin in our stories. Sin left unchecked just keeps spiraling on. And because of that very fact, then the second theme I want to point out is that every ultimate desire apart from God will eventually end in disillusion. I'm going to keep us from having strobe lights just for a second. Every ultimate desire apart from God will eventually end up in disillusion. And that's just, again, the repeated part of this story. Because of all the hurt and the pain and the dysfunction everywhere, you've got different people at different times in different ways trying to strive for the thing, to try and grasp after the thing, and even when they maybe get it, it still leaves them like sand through their fingers, disillusioned. Right? Jacob keeps thinking, if I can just have Rachel, everything will be okay. And Leah does the same. If I can just have Jacob and his attention and attachment, everything will be okay. Laban says, if I just can have control in the story, everything will be okay. Rachel, who has the beauty and marital love, says, if I just have children, everything will be okay. And what you end up with is this group of people, different people, different places, different longings, different desires investing so much meaning into a particular thing that can't bear it. When good things become ultimate things, they become idols that can't satisfy us. And they all discover it. They discover that it's never enough. They discover, behold, it's Leah. It's why the success of your business will never be enough. It's why the longing for marriage, getting married, married will never be enough. 
Having kids will never be enough. Having the perfect body will never be enough. Having the best clothes will never be enough. Getting a, 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 the right job or the raise or X amount of money in the bank or the perfect vacation, it'll never be enough. And yet we have been sold the bill of goods to think that it will be enough. If you just get a little more and just try a little harder and you just get this one. No, not that one, this one. No, not that one, this one. And it's this endless cycle that we are on. It's the American treadmill of if you just got this thing, you'd be happy. And then we get that thing and it's never enough. David Foster Wallace, who's not a believer, gave a famous speech at a college one day, but he made the declaration that everyone worships. Everyone worships. Worship is not optional. Everyone worships. It's just a matter of what you worship. And as he points out, everything that we pursue will end up eating you alive because it won't satisfy. C.S. Lewis finishes this quote from Mere Christianity. Sorry, I didn't put it in all the different languages. It was way too long. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy, it does not prove that that universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take, on the one hand, never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of a copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and to help others to do the same. All these things end up being shadows and mirages of the real thing, the real one who can satisfy the longing of your soul. And here's the good news, is that that disillusionment is actually a gift to you to keep you looking and pointing toward him. to the one who does satisfy, to the one who does love you unconditionally, to the one who will never leave you or forsake you, to the one who laid down his life to rescue you from Satan's sin and death, to the true longing of your heart, which can't be satisfied in a man or a woman or a marriage or a child or a job or money, but to be found in him. It's meant to arouse the true object of your desire, which is God himself. And the story, this story, our story of cosmic disillusionment leads us back to the one who can give us ultimate hope and identity. It's God. And actually, you know who figures it out in the story first? It's Leah. Forgotten, overlooked, unloved Leah. I'm just going to put this up here at the end. Genesis 29, 35, in the midst of her like baby 
process of like having all these kids. Verse 35, she says, and she conceived again. She bore a son. And she said, this time I'll praise the Lord. And she called his name Judah. And then she stopped bearing. She ceased bearing. The first kids are like, oh, I've been heard. Maybe my husband will love me. Ah, oh, now I'll have attachment for my husband who doesn't attach to me. And maybe he, ah, and she's, she's struggling and striving and having children for the sake of her husband. She finally has this child and she goes, this time, this is not about my husband or my competition with my sister or anything else. This time, ah, I will praise God. And she stops having kids. She worships. And her son is Judah. It's interesting. Judah. The one through whom the line, the lion of Judah, the line of Judah would come is Jesus. This is Jesus' great, 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 great grandfather. So at the end of the day, in the fullness of the story, as one author put it, God comes to the girl that nobody wanted, the unloved, and made her the ancestral mother of Jesus. And salvation came into the world, not through the beautiful Rachel, but through the unwanted one, the unloved one. And this story rings with the echoes of Jesus, who is the true and better bridegroom, of Jesus, who is the husband for all the husbandless, for the father of the fatherless, the lover of the unlovely, Jesus, who's the true desire of every longing heart. I don't know how you fill in the blank of the thing you've always wanted. The man, the woman, the child, the job, the house, the kids, the vacation, the 401k, the promotion, the body, the looks, the wardrobe. Again, we, we could go on and on. But all of those pursuits will lead you to a place of disillusionment, and I thank God for the disillusionment in me and in you, because it's God's desire to bring through our disillusionment in our searching, to bring our wandering hearts back to the one we're made for. Maybe he's calling us again today to repent of our heart's worship in all the places we look and seek to find meaning and purpose outside of him. Whether you know him or not yet today, God is the one you've always wanted. And he's offered himself freely to you in his grace. And he's using this current season of disillusionment, whatever that may be, to beckon you closer to himself. That you would come to a place of worship to him, following him, knowing him, serving him, receiving love from him, identity from him, purpose from him, fulfillment from him. May your heart be stirred again this morning for the one at the end of your disillusionment. Let's pray. 
Lord, I thank you for the story of Jacob and Laban and Leah and Rachel, and it's easy again to look at these messy stories and be like, ugh, that's horrible. I can't believe they do this or that. And yet in our own lives, different story, different era, different specifics, but God, we do the same. And so, Lord, in this room, even today, there are just a laundry list of desires and longings and worshipers of all sorts of things, including myself. And so we ask God in your kindness and grace to redirect our affections and our attention back to you. That we would turn from the things that ultimately do not satisfy, the things that will ruin us. But may we find ourselves again today particularly drawn back to the cross, back to the resurrection, back to the place where you've shown yourself to be faithful and true. Lord, we desire to love you, serve you, know you above all else. Lord, may that be the case. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.